You're listening to the Science Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. One of the great things about science is that you get to think about how things work, things that you've always taken for granted, like lightning, which is what we're going to talk about today. And a cool thing about doing a science show on a subject like this is that you find out that there's a whole world of people who study lightning. And there are all kinds of tools and sensors that are used to study lightning. And on top of that, there's a bunch of reasons that you never thought of, that I didn't certainly didn't know, why the study of lightning is actually beneficial. Beyond, of course, the satisfaction of knowing something for the sake of knowing it, which is not to be discounted. We will find out more about all of this in today's interview with lightning physicist Tess Light. I sometimes hesitate to do shows on topics for which it's necessary to remember like what you learned in high school physics classes, but then I think, whatever, if you don't remember what an electric current is exactly, just listen anyway and have fun with today's guest, who, besides being a physicist at a national lab, is also a playwright and a terrific science communicator. So let's go to our conversation with Tess Light. I'm very happy now to welcome Tess Light. She is a physicist at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and we're here to talk about lightning. Welcome. Hi. So I'm sorry, I have to say it. your name is Light. You study lightning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but what is lightning? So lightning fundamentally is an electrical current. We get huge charge buildup in clouds and in the ground in in the presence of thunderstorms. And uh, an electrical current, if it can flow between two points, if you get negative charge building up in one part of the cloud, positive charge building up in another part of the cloud, the air in between them can break down and you get a current. And like a current through your light bulb or something else, it's gonna cause light. And The old time light bulbs. The old time light bulbs. It's a, it's a slightly different process, but basically, you know, it's the same kind of thing. It's a huge flow of current, and it lights up. And then the thunder is because it's sort of an explosive process, and it causes a, a bit of a shock in the air around the current flow. And then it stops, and it's very fast because the current moves really fast and tries to equilibrate, and then it starts building up again. And that's what it is. So where there is thunder, there's always lightning and vice versa? Um, pretty much. If you don't see light if you hear thunder and don't see light probably the lightning is occurring deep within the cloud and the light's not getting out and if you see light and don't hear thunder probably it's because it's so far away that the sound damps out before it gets to you why do we have lightning in the summer and not in the winter so the conditions that make lightning in the cloud in a big thunderstorm and we're familiar with this in new mexico in a big thunderstorm you get uh, hot air is rising in what we call convective towers. So there's a narrow region and the, the hot air is going up. And in the process of doing that, the different kinds of supercooled particles, you have water, but it's very cold, or you have little particles called graupel. It's like soft hail, like tiny little snowballs. They move at different speeds in this warm air that's rising. So they bump against each other and the heavier stuff kind of doesn't go as high. And when they bump together, they, they exchange charge so then two things might hit each other and a negative charge attaches to the one that's going to be lofted high. So you end up building up these charge layers and then you can get lightning. And you need this heat to generate these convective towers. And so typically that happens over land masses in hotter times of year. So you don't have thunder and lightning 
over the o- the middle of the ocean so there's much? There's much less. Yeah, there there is, but but it's uh, much less. If you have, if you're interested and you go online, you can look up maps of lightning occurrence, and you'll see that it's really biased to overland. One of the things that I was reading when I was preparing to talk to you was that hurricanes generally don't have lightning, but some recent hurricanes have. So it was it was always thought um, you don't see a lot of lightning in hurricanes, and I, and I'm not exactly sure. I mean, people didn't see it, so that's what we understood to be true. And I think the thinking was that that's a lateral flow, these huge winds swirling, and it wasn't creating the proper conditions for lightning. But um, Because in, in a hurricane, they're swirling around, like you see on the maps, those, yeah. the eye of the hurricane in the middle and all that. And in a regular thunderstorm, it's not that kind of circular thing. It's like up and down. Right. It's this it's this layering effect in a, in a regular thunderstorm. So I think that might have been the thinking. But a while ago now, during uh, we had a bad hurricane season, a couple of them years ago, there was Hurricane Katrina, there was Hurricane Rita. And some of my team members deployed sensors on the Gulf Coast, and they were looking at, instead of just relying on light, which, as we just mentioned, might not escape the cloud depending on how, you know, how dense it is, rather than just relying on that, they put out radio frequency sensors. And what they could find, they could locate, if you put enough sensors out, you can kind of triangulate to get the source of the radio emission. And so they found all these bursts of radio emission from lightning right in the eye wall the eye, so the wall of that light, yeah. eye of the hurricane. So there is apparently, you know, the proper kind of convection, the proper kind of charge separation happening there in that wall. And and even more interestingly, they found that the rate of lightning, you know, the average kind of flashes per minute or something, uh, seemed to increase shortly before intensification of the hurricane. So there's a process going on, and one of its side effects is you get a jump in lightning production, and then the overall hurricane becomes more intense, which uh, is sort of tantalizing to try and help. We currently, you know, have models that predict hurricane intensification, but every piece that might help the puzzle is is something to think about. So the lightning was there all along. It's just that you have tools that it. detected it. So it's that kind of lightning that you can't see? Uh, not necessarily. The, the the light, the optical light that our eyes would see from it might just be buried because there's so much cloud between the eye wall and the observer. Okay. And most people probably aren't standing close to the eye wall in the hurricane. You know, I don't know how many people had actually gone into a hurricane and tried to look for lightning. Um, right. The nice thing about... They're probably the, busy. Yeah. Like they're running the other way. So... The nice thing about using radio frequency, for example, to study lightning is you can do it from long distances. The radio frequency emission isn't degraded by the presence of the cloud. So you kind of get this opportunity to, to stand back. And and also, like I said, with Because mul- radio waves can go through clouds. They go through cloud. That's right. And light doesn't. We all have experienced the cloudy day and even sunlight, something as bright as sunlight, can be dimmed significantly. So, right. you know, a small lightning... Uh, burst flash isn't going to necessarily be visible. And another nice thing about the using radio frequencies is um, you can put out a few sensors and then locate the source. So when I if I see lightning, I can't quite tell how far away it is. I can't quite tell how high it is. You know, you don't have anything to reference it to. But if you essentially triangulate your sources, then you can kind of pinpoint it. Right. So... I mean, it's interesting to imagine, 
you scientists kind of running around following the eye of a hurricane. <laughs> I don't know any storm chasers. Um, <laughs> maybe we're not that adventurous. Another thing that I was reading about was that there's a certain type of lightning that doesn't give off light. That sounds like an oxymoron. Right. So I have to be a little careful here. Um, there are types of lightning. There, there's, there's different types of discharges. And one type seems to give off gamma ray bursts, and some give off x-rays. And sometimes people talk about these things, these gamma ray flashes, and they call them dark lightning. And that's true because gamma rays, you know, aren't visible. They give off gamma rays and, and radio waves and stuff like that. I don't know if they've been studied optically, but somehow they got labeled dark lightning. But there's another kind, which I think you're referring to, which explicitly does not give off light. We've studied it in both radio waves and optical light, and it doesn't seem to give off light, you know. But what's lightning about it then? Well, so it is still um, a burst of charge and something about, there's, there's something inhibiting the optical light production. And and honestly, I'm not sure what that is yet. So there's things we don't know about lightning. Lots of things. There's different mechanisms for how it starts. Some lightning gives off, seems to give off gamma rays. Some seems to give off x-rays. Some gives off light and a small subset doesn't. It all seems to give off radio frequency radiation. But the actual mechanism of what initiates that current flow, I described it as big current flow. So something has to allow that to happen. Air doesn't conduct electricity, cause, and, and if it did, you know, we'd all be in trouble, right? Just, you know. We wouldn't probably be here in the first yeah, place. Yeah, it wouldn't be a good or thing, Or we wouldn't right? be us, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and so air is an insulator. But to any insulator, if you apply a big enough electric field that is build up enough charge on one side and enough of the opposite charge on the other side, a big enough electric field between them, and you can eventually break down the insulator, and a current will flow. And that's fine, that's true for air, but we've never observed the level of electric fields in thunderstorms that would be necessary to break air down. Air has kind of a high breakdown potential, and so we haven't seen the conditions that would make it obvious. Oh, the electric field was so high that of course lightning just struck the ground. Instead, Everyone's probably familiar with the fact that lightning is forked and branched, and it, it seems like it's, it's happening in little fits and starts. The breakdown potential is happening in tiny little regions, and you get a little breakdown, and then you get a little more, and not everyone is going to end up connecting to the ground, you know. And so the mechanisms aren't perfectly understood. And some of the models, the mathematical models and the physical models that describe it, don't necessarily account for things like the potential for x-rays or gamma rays to come off or don't account for optical light not coming. So there's different kinds of lightning and how they actually start is not particularly well understood. What are some of the tools, I mean you've told us some of them already, but what are the tools that you use to study lightning? So some of the people in my team use ground-based sensors that are essentially an antenna attached to a computer, and they're measuring changes in the electric field, and sharp changes indicate you know, a current flowing so they can see that a, some kind of lightning has just occurred. And any one sensor can't locate it, but if you field an array of these, you know, some five, six, ten of these over some area, then you get this idea, you can map out all the little VHF emissions from the ground. We also, we have flown experimental satellites. 
we're designing and building one right now. And the Forte satellite, for example, had an optical sensor and a VHF sensor, a, a radio sensor, so it could combine looking at light and radio waves from lightning. And and so, you know, space-based, ground-based. Right. Yeah. When you look at lightning, especially in photos, it looks for all the world like a river with its tributaries. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, is there a relationship between why a river system from the air looks the way it does and why pictures of lightning look the way they do? I mean, is there a relationship between those two kinds of physics? So one difference is if you picture the lightning starting in the cloud, think of it as a river and the current flows down, it's creating the tributary. So it's almost more like a river delta. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's more like a river delta. So it comes down and it flows out. And, you know, the physical mechanisms, I, 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 I'm not a hydrologist. I assume river deltas have to do more with how the, the land is sloping and so the flow, you know, the, how the flow decides to go through. Although I guess now that I think about it, that's not bad because what's happening with the, what we think is happening with all those different branches of the lightning, and I'm gesturing with my hands like your listeners can actually see me gesture with my hands. <laughs> but you're um, Italian, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what's happening is the current is looking for a path. It's trying to flow, and it's finding little places to go, and, and it is like a river delta. So the water is looking for a path, and every little parcel of water finds the easiest path to go, and it goes, and it might end up being a dead end, or it might follow the main branch and end up going all the way to the sea. But yeah, it's, it's a similar kind of thing. The physical force is pushing something, current or water, forward. Yeah. And so when you look at lightning, sometimes you see lightning in the clouds and it just kind of stays there and sometimes it comes towards the ground. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between those two? Like, does it... It's funny because like in science, you a lot of the time you hear the word like it wants to... The mm-hmm. force wants to go here. Right volition, I don't know, <laughs> but that's the language we use. But do those kinds of currents want to move toward the earth for whatever reason? Well, like I said, first of all, you you must, I, I believe you must get some kind of localized regions where the electric field's really high. And, you know, nature, nature isn't laid out like roads in your, in your town so that the cars, you know, you wouldn't say the cars want to flow down the road. They do because that's how everything is designed to work together. But the air isn't laid out like that. And so there isn't already a path. So your phrase, the path of least resistance, the the charge is looking, it feels a pull wherever there's a high electric field or details in, in the air, it makes it easier to go one way than the other. So it doesn't want to the the way we think of want, but what it can do is changing all the time. Now, in a lightning flash, that first flash is all structured like that with the branching because it's it's seeking that path of least resistance. It's seeking a way to get to ground. Again, not consciously seeking. It's just pushing, pushing, pushing. And if a connection is made, it's made. But lightning often, have you ever noticed it flickers um, mm-hmm. sometimes? So what that actually is, is so a, a channel gets created to ground and you get a big pulse of current and light. And then it's not done, and and it does it again. But when it does it again, there's already a very convenient road there. Now it's like the cars. It just goes down that road. It goes down the channel that's already there, and it pulses, because you'll see it happen once, and then it's a couple milliseconds later, and it happens again, and it's using the same path. And those subsequent strokes are not as branched. 
because now there's a big wide road for it to follow. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, you can say once you build the road, everybody flows yeah. down that instead of going through like different paths through the woods. Or right. Whatever. And then the road doesn't stay there. I mean, within a couple seconds or whatever, it's equilibrated it's again. Done. It's, it's done. It's not there. So that your next lightning strike a minute later is not going to go right down right. that same path. Very interesting. So lightning comes down from the sky, down from the clouds, but there's some kind of also like upward movement too. Yeah, so the breakdown starts to happen and all these little feelers, we call them streamers. So the streamers start to happen and they're trying to find that path to ground. And I'm not entirely sure why this happens, but it gets to within some distance above ground. But what's also happening is, I said there's these charge layers, the charge builds up in the cloud. Well, if you've got a negative charge layer, say at the bottom of your cloud, the Earth is going to respond. You know, the Earth is a few kilometers away and it's going to respond and you're going to actually get a, a region of positive charge opposing that on the ground, okay? So the Earth is one of those charge layers, okay? okay? So it's like a big old, what do they call that, a Dagwood sandwich. We've got layers of charge going all the way up, you know, high into the clouds. And maybe the negative charge in the cloud is trying to find a path to ground and it's making these streamers, but the positive charge in the Earth is also attracted up and it starts to create its own little channel. And you won't see this cataclysmic strike to ground unless those two channels meet. You've probably seen images of, you know, lightning that's coming down from the cloud, but it seems to strike kilometers away, like it actually deviates. It goes diagonal. Yeah, it goes sort of diagonal or whatever. And it's a really dramatic thing to see a picture of that. That's probably because that's where the charge from the ground was, was trying to lift you know, you were getting a small channel from the ground up and a big channel from the cloud down, and they diagonally kind of went and met. And that, that can happen too. Is there a difference between the kind of response of lightning that you have over a city versus over the countryside? Well, so if you have a building, you can get one of these upward touch points created over your building. There's no reason, you know. So something higher would therefore be that conduit to ground that lightning can touch. That's why, you know, you don't stand under a, a tree and you don't want to stand on top of a tall building. You know, you don't want to wave your umbrella in a thunderstorm because you are going to become <laughs> that preferred connection right. to the lightning. So in a city, you've got all these tall buildings and that's why they put those lightning rods on top because what you can do is I put my lightning rod and I hope that that's going to attract the lightning to that rod then the huge current hits that rod and I've what what the engineers will do is they'll divide there's whole conferences there's whole fields of study devoted to exactly how you protect your buildings and in your infrastructure from lightning so lightning rod technology is continually in development yeah and the lightning rod itself is pretty straightforward but what you do is you connect it to you know wires and everything uh, conductors that take it to ground and dump all that charge from the lightning strike into the ground. Literally into the ground. Literally into the ground so that, because the ground can absorb quite a bit, it can cause currents in the ground and you don't want that either. So you have to really dump it and dispose of it basically. There's whole fields of study on the best ways to protect your infrastructure. Now, does lightning tell us anything about climate change? I would say that's an open question. So as I mentioned, you know, it's, it's connected with these severe convective updrafts. So I'm, I'm totally hypothesizing here. If you end up with more severe weather events, 
because climate change seems to be causing you know, less rainfall overall, but it comes in more severe short bursts, or you have hotter, drier conditions, so that could cause a more severe kind of response. If you get more severe things, you're going to end up with more lightning. I don't know that lightning has yet been shown to be a useful thing to observe to look at climate change, but we have talked about things like trying to relate it to sea surface temperature. We have data going back decades now, so if you could look at changes in lightning rates over decades, you might see that it's changing as sea surface temperatures and and ground temperatures change. Are tall ships sailing on the ocean potential lightning rods? Are they in danger? Um, I I would assume so. I don't I don't really know. I don't I don't know anything about ships. I don't know if they're what they're made of particularly. I guess metal, modern ships are made of metal, but first of all, there's not a lot of lightning over the water. And secondly, you've got this huge, fantastic conductor that is the ocean, salt water, you know. So some of the most intense lightning strikes we do see, we don't see a lot of lightning over water, but when we do, it's really intense because that seawater really, you know, it creates a beautiful channel and you get a really strong connection there. Does it fry the fish? Um, I don't think so, but I, I would assume that fish are kind of fleeing. I, I would think that if I was a fish, and they're pretty amazing, actually. They sense magnetic fields and stuff. I would think that when there's a storm overhead and you end up with a charge buildup in the water, the fish have long fled, right. is my guess. But but you do get really strong strikes to the water. And I'm thinking that's going to be a more tempting target for the lightning than ships. Although I don't know. Planes, they work hard to make planes uh, shielded so that, you know, if they have to fly through lightning conditions, it can roll off the skin. So maybe ships are similarly protected. So why do you study lightning at Los Alamos National Laboratory? Los Alamos has had a mission since the 1960s to monitor nuclear test treaties. And we do that partially from space. So from space, you can get a good view of the entire Earth, you know, and um, with a few satellites, you've got total global coverage, and so you can monitor if anybody was violating one of our nuclear test treaties. And a nuclear bomb, I have learned since coming to (laughs) Los Alamos, it gives off light and it gives off radio emission, and so we build these satellites that can see that, and fortunately we don't see a lot of nuclear bombs because of the testing treaties. Therefore, what we do see, what we use to make sure our sensors are working to, you know, and so forth and study how our sensors work is the lightning background. So they're the background signal. And we need to understand it so that we can write computer algorithms that won't think every time there's a thunderstorm that it's a nuclear war. Um, So we, we study it to understand that and we study it to build better sensors that are more sensitive and so forth because it's, a, it's essentially a proxy. So if somebody is doing, let's say, an illegal nuclear test somewhere, the kinds of sensors that you use to study lightning are the same sensors you use to pick up that data? Well, the sensors that we use, the Forte satellite from a couple decades ago, for example, was an experiment. We were testing new technology. And so its mission was entirely to look at lightning to test that technology. The technology then got built into the actual operational sensors that we use and and are looking globally. That was one satellite. One satellite can't all the time persistently monitor the entire Earth. You need a network. But the technology that we demoed in that one satellite then got 
deployed operationally for monitoring. We also have sensors that um, monitor X-rays, neutrons, and gamma rays. And they don't see lightning necessarily, but their background signals might be gamma ray bursts. For example, that's an astrophysical phenomenon or space weather phenomena. And so we also have research programs in those fields, again, born out of this treaty monitoring need. Space weather, that sounds like another oxymoron. Yeah. So what that's referring to is the Earth exists in an environment. We have a magnetic field, and then we have a sun, and the sun creates something called the solar wind. So there's particles and, and radiation coming from the sun. And they deform the magnetic field bubble that the Earth is in, because we have our own magnetic field, but it's kind of deformed because of the presence of the particles coming from the sun. So in that bubble around us, you get belts of charged radiation, charged particles, you get belts of radiation, and um, and it's a dynamic environment. So if the sun throws off a coronal mass ejection, for example, it impacts our local environment, and if, for example, there's a huge enhancement of charged particles out in space right around the Earth, they can feed into the Earth's atmosphere through the magnetic field lines. That's what causes the aurora, for example. The aurora borealis, yeah. the northern lights. Yeah. So, so you know, huge coronal mass ejection might What's enhance... A, what is a coronal mass ejection? Oh, now you're oh, getting outside. Oh, never mind. It's, yeah, it's, you know, it's the outer layer of the sun, and it's, it's a plasma, and it's charged particles and stuff that come, but the details of it, I don't really... Yeah. It's not me. Um, but but it, it impacts us, and it might be something as benign and beautiful as an enhanced aurora, but it also can cause power outages. It can couple into our power grid... And there have been examples throughout history of, you know, huge space weather events that have zotted our electrical grid, you know, so we want to understand that as well. Oh, it can also impact our satellites, which is pretty bad because we depend on satellites now. So when we talk about space weather, we're sort of talking about inside the solar system. Oh, definitely. Yeah, we're talking, in fact, we're talking about local to the, the region around the Earth. Okay. Yeah, like in this magnetic field bubble that we have. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, you know, one imagines like going out between the galaxies and having there be weather and that doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, we're not there yet. We can't (laughs) study that as well as we want to. So I have to ask you, have you ever been to this artwork in southern New Mexico called the Lightning Fields? I have not. I've heard of it and it sounds really cool. New Mexico has a fair bit of lightning. Um, We're not one of the top four hotspots in the world, but we're up there. So yeah, I'd like to go see that. Do you... I mean, as sci- I always wonder, like, if you're a scientist, whether your sense of wonder at these amazing things kind of goes away because you know so much about it. Um, that's a good question. I was going to say no, because I, I find the world infinitely amazing. But even if I think I understand something really, really well so that it becomes boring, chances are I probably don't understand it <laughs> Well, and at some point it will surprise me. Like Um, lightning? Like lightning or anything, you know, there's always another question to ask. So, and I I find it awe-inspiring at how everything has adapted together. You know, thunderstorms create flooding and the the flooding is a necessary part of the ecosystem, you know, the natural cycle in the ecosystem or that creates forest fires. And these are horrible things that humans don't like but they become a necessary part, like everything has adapted to need each other. I I find that fascinating, you know. And the fact that we label them as horrible things. They're inconvenient for us. Yeah, they're (laughs) inconvenient for us, and especially when we have the 
bad judgment to build our houses <laughs> in places that we shouldn't and things like that. For example, yeah, well... Like floodplains and forests. Because they're beautiful. So we build there and then we want them to stay exactly the way they were. And nature didn't really intend that. So I find nature, even if any one esoteric point seems solved to me or isn't interesting to me anymore, there's always so much more that's fascinating. Tess Light is a physicist at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Science Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you have any questions or comments, you can contact me through the website, scienceradiocafe.org. Just hit contact. Please follow us on Twitter, at Radio Cafe MC, and like us at Facebook and check out our posts at facebook.com slash radiocafe. Many thanks to Steady Networks, providing managed IT services and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more at SteadyNetworks.com. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you, and we'll see you next time.